Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you to turn there with us. Galatians chapter 1, 1 through 5. We've done an introduction, and now we are actually going to begin working through the text over a series of months. We believe that the book of Galatians can be summarized with a question, is Jesus enough or do we need more? What more do we need than we, than we do not already have in Jesus? One lucky lady, a young HR professional who will call Jill, got the lovely assignment of firing someone her first day on the job. The manager of the company asked Jill to come into his office and told her, I need you to fire Amy. Jill responded with okay and did not ask for many details. She was only aware of the fact that this job was performance-based, which may have had something to do with the mistake that occurred. Jill called Amy into her office, and after a brief two-minute one-on-one meeting, Amy's employment was terminated, and she left the building. What follows is best relayed in Jill's exact words. My boss approached me an hour later and asked for a recap of the meeting. He also asked me to evaluate my performance, which I concluded was done to a satisfactory level. He then asked if the meeting was performed to satisfaction, then why was she still on the property and still performing her regular duties? I quickly looked at the person he was pointing towards, and my heart immediately raced and my face turned as red as a radish. I had terminated the wrong person. My boss then went on to utter some words inappropriate for even some backyard garage settings, (laughs) but then settled down and called this my first learning experience in the real world. It took me a few sleepless nights and a week's worth of Tim Hortons to pay back the affected parties, but I managed to survive and have never entered a meeting unprepared since. Defining what something is sits at the center of our ability to communicate. In many ways, communication sits at the center of civilization. If we are unable to define words or objects, we lose our ability to communicate and to understand. How many times have we thought we were communicating with our spouses only to find out that what we thought they meant was entirely different than what they were attempting to communicate? This is a duck. A duck is defined as a water bird with a broad, blunt bill, short legs, webbed feet, and a waddling gait. These things look like ducks. But are they ducks? 
We have been seeing in the book of Galatians that if we assume the gospel, it becomes distorted, which in time becomes a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. The gospel is a definable entity. It is something that is known. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, 1 through 5, beginning, begins to define for us what the gospel is. His approach, however, is direct. Recently, I read the story of an individual who was working in his garage. He was the kind of person who did not like to be interrupted while engaged in a project. Knowing this, his wife walked into the garage and stood quietly at his side for several minutes, waiting for the proper time to speak. At last, her husband looked up, the signal that she was free to say what was on her mind. Very calmly and without a trace of panic, she said, The house is on fire. (laughs) There definitely is a time to forsake the customary polite social graces and bluntly state the problem. The burning house was a time for immediate communication. Likewise, for the Apostle Paul in the churches of Galatia, the desertion of the churches of Galatia from the teaching of Paul and from the gospel of God's grace was the time for the sounding of the alarm. Paul had little time to waste in polite introductions for the problem facing these churches could have had devastating results. Indeed, they have had devastating results. The church or the gospel is always under siege by the persistent virus which seeks to infect it and us with a distorted gospel resulting in a different gospel, and such a gospel is no gospel at all. Paul does two things in our opening paragraph, and you'll have to remember that we are simply treating it as a paragraph, but this is an entire letter which if you took time to read the six chapters, it would take about 15 to 20 minutes. Paul does two things in this opening idea or statement. First, he sets the tone, and then he defines or identifies the priority. I've been asking all week of the staff and individuals, what is indeed the most important thing that we have as a church? What is the most important thing that we do? And that thing we have and that thing we do can be summarized in one word, which is gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. Now, let's look at this, because in our opening paragraph, the Apostle Paul does two simple things. If you have your Bibles open and you're following along, you'll see in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. The first thing the Apostle Paul does is defend his apostleship. Paul himself is under attack. If they can topple the messenger, they have undermined the message. And thus Paul begins, and he'll elaborate on this idea all the way through chapter 1 and 2, chapter 2, verse 14. But the Apostle Paul defends his apostleship. And the second thing we see is that he defines for us the gospel. But let's consider what he says concerning his apostleship. He does two things. First, he says that his apostleship is from God. And the second thing he does is he identifies his alliance. There are others who agree with the apostle Paul in his declaration and defining and defense of the gospel. The apostle is not standing alone in any of this. However, I think Paul is of such a temperament 
that if he had to stand alone, he would stand alone. But he, in his opening paragraph, identifies and defends his apostleship and then identifies those who are standing with him in this. His authority for acting and he was not acting alone. How do you know you are right when everyone else seems to be saying something different? How do you know you're right when everyone else seems to be saying something different? Well, here sits the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is declaring that anyone who deviates from the gospel that he has declared, let them be accursed. The language that the Apostle Paul employs is strong language. But how does the Apostle Paul know that he is right when everyone else seems to be saying something different? This is a problem, isn't it? But at the end of the day, we have an absolute source that tests all that it's said. Does what is said and taught align with the Bible? I stand up here and I have a certain personality and I have a certain volume and I have a certain social charisma. But is what I say true simply because of me? God help us all, amen? It has to be based on the text. That's why we try to be very careful in teaching biblical theology as it is addressed in a single book and tell you this is what the structure leading to this emphasis is saying. We've got to be able to stand on the word of God. I am not overly concerned about what everyone else is saying or doing. I am concerned as to what this book teaches and how we align ourselves with it. So the Apostle Paul in those opening verses identifies and defends his apostleship and those who would align with him. The second thing he does is begin to define the gospel. Now I found this an excellent exercise as I looked at this particular paragraph and I think Paul elaborates on the gospel which we will see from 2.15 all the way through chapter 3 and chapter 4 before he gets into the implications of the gospel for that local community. But the Apostle Paul begins from the very start to define what the gospel is and there are several things that are stated that we would do well to note. What is the gospel? Well, we can begin with this idea that in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You'll remember that the Bible tells a single story, a unified story, and at the center of this story is Jesus Christ. Currently, we are looking at Matthew in another one of our studies, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Here we have the narrative, the account of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Well, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? God did. The Father did. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, He's declared to be the Son of God with power. During the time of Jesus, and I found this idea rather startling, but during the time of Jesus, there were people self-identifying as Messiah. They were saying that they were the ones. And Jesus then comes along and says, no, I'm the one. And what's interesting about Jesus in relation to all these other messiahs, he did what they did. He died. And they are dead. But he did something that none of the other ones did, and that is he came back to life. 
God the Father raised Jesus Christ, the Son, from the grave. And he's declared to be God's one, God's Messiah, God's anointed. How do we begin defining the gospel? Well, which one is built around a resurrected Christ? Jesus. That begins for us the defining of this gospel. Notice how he continues. He was raised from the dead to the churches of Galatia. We've discussed this already. Grace to you in peace, a standard epistolary or letter greeting, but grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, and I think there are other elements we could indeed elaborate on as they are found inside our text, but the gospel is defined by a resurrected living Messiah, Jesus. It is grace-based, and it results in peace with God. This whole idea of grace is that God is doing something for you that you cannot do for yourself. He answers the one question that you and I cannot answer for ourselves, and that is the sin and death question. And throughout Galatians, as we will see as we explore the book, but you have faith and works in opposition to each other inside of the book of Galatians. Galatians says that the works of the law are the opposite of faith in Christ. The opposite of faith is the work. The idea that our relationship is appropriated by faith is a gracious act and expression by God. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How do we receive what he has provided? It is by believing that he, Jesus, is the Messiah. We believe that he is the apex of that biblical narrative, the story. He answers for us the one question. He restores for us back to that garden encounter with God for our joy. And we believe that. That is faith in Christ. That's believing that storyline. And when we believe that, we receive all that God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If God required work to appropriate salvation, if you had to in some way merit or earn salvation, then there is no possible way that you would ever do enough to achieve it. That's why we say you can't. You cannot do enough to gain what God needs done. And these two ideas of faith and works are inseparable. They're inseparable. But they are sequential and the order cannot be reversed. One is the cause, the other is the consequence. And any time we believe or teach we have to do to gain or maintain our relationship with God is to diminish what Jesus did on the cross. It's grace-based. We are not adding to the gospel when we do that. We are diminishing his power. His words, it is finished, mean just that. It's done. By the way, amen. There is no such thing as a barren tree in God's orchard of grace. And yet it is grace-based, and we will continue to expand on this as we work through this particular letter. So I know when we begin defining the gospel by the Apostle Paul from the book of Galatians that we are speaking of a resurrected Christ. We are speaking of something that's grace-based and we are speaking of something that results in peace. If you believe in Jesus, and I would say that the significant majority of those who hear my voice right now believe in Jesus. 
And if you believe in Jesus and you do not have peace with God, then something is wrong with your gospel. Something is wrong with your theology. You might be in emotional turmoil in the horizontal, but if you believe in Jesus, the vertical is set because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I can be someone who is always itching and scratching, but in the vertical, I have peace with God. And why? Because I believe in the resurrected Christ. And I believe that I've appropriated that by faith. It's been given to me by grace. When you read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and the text says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you. If the rest you have or the peace you have is not there in the vertical, then something is wrong with your understanding of the gospel. The same can be said concerning Luke 4, 18 through 19. And that's why Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, of unrest, of labor. It's a peace-defined gospel. And then notice verse 3. He says, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 who gave himself for our sins, who gave himself for our sins with this purpose in mind, to deliver us from the present evil age. Two things are highlighted. Three, it is a voluntary substitutionary death. He is doing something for me, for us, that we cannot do for ourselves. He voluntarily took our place on the cross. In that moment, God took our sins and placed them on him. He becomes for us the sin bearer. He is an atoning sacrifice. If you read the book of Romans, it is because of what Jesus has done, the Father can now declare us right. Redemption transpires in the person and work of Jesus where our sin debt against him has been met in full. And the wrath of God against us because of a broken law has been placated or propitiated. That's what happens when God the Father takes our sin and imputes it on him. He becomes the sin bearer. When we by faith believe in him, he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So God the Father sees me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The text tells us that the sacrifice he offered, the gospel, is defined by this voluntary substitutionary death. And by the way, as big a mouthful as that is, you need to say it. And then we also see it is a penal satisfaction. A penalty is being paid. Who gave himself for our sins. A transgression had transpired. Violation existed. The gap, the barrier, the obstacle was present. But in this voluntary substitutionary death, a penal satisfaction was made. And there was redemption. There was propitiation. And the wrath of God against me produced by a broken law has been answered. This is what we enjoy. This is where we are to be living Not only is it a voluntary substitutionary death, not only does it satisfy the wrath of God against me, but it delivered and is delivering me from this present evil age. 
the deliverance or rescue presupposes that you, you have no ability to rescue yourself. If I'm inside a house that is burning down and I have somehow broken my legs and I am unable to get myself out of the building, I need to be rescued. And then a brave fireman bursts through the flames and into this burning building and rescues me. He is removing me from that present evil danger. You only need rescuing if you are needing to be saved. No one is rescued from a burning building if they are able to save themselves. This is what the gospel does. It delivered and is delivering us from this present evil age. It is a culmination. Notice the language of our text. I'll come back to this in just a moment. But notice the language of our text. According to the will of our God and Father. It is a culmination of God's story. The gospel as we have defined it in the New Testament is embedded in the Hebrew scripture. You cannot read Genesis through Malachi and not begin to understand gospel. Jesus Christ is the culmination of that story. That's why you need to know story. When you think of what Adam and Eve experienced when they rebelled against God, they experienced shame, they experienced guilt, they experienced fear for the very first time they tasted that metallic taste in their mouth. Well, Jesus reverses all that. He brings us back to a place of hope and access. He brings us back to a place of peace and of joy. This is what God does. But the story of the gospel, in defining the gospel, we know that it's based on the resurrected Messiah. We know that it's grace-based. It results in peace. We know that it's a voluntary substitutionary death. We know that it's a penal satisfaction, all that from this text. We know that it delivers and delivered us from this present evil age. We know that it is indeed a culmination of God's story. It's according to God's will, that which began in the garden, now find its fulfillment in Jesus. And we know that it is for his glory, not ours, his glory. In his presence, none of us will ever, ever boast we have no glory. All of it is His. But the text says that we have been rescued or delivered from this present evil age. We have been rescued from this one and reserved for the next one. Paul notes the same truth in Colossians 1.13 when he says that we've been delivered from a kingdom of darkness and we've now been placed into the kingdom of His Son. Those are present realities. John says that while we are still in this world, we are not of this world. Not only have we been rescued from this one, but we are being reserved for the one to come. That is the hope we then have. So the Apostle Paul in this opening statement defends his apostleship. He says it's not from men or through man, but from God, the very one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only do I have declare and defend my apostleship, but I have others with me who stand with me. And then he defines for us, he begins to define for us, he's going to expand on this, beginning in verses 6 all the way through chapter, actually, beginning in chapter 2, verse 15, all the way through chapter 4. But he defines for us the gospel. But here he gives us these eight markers. It's dealing with a resurrected Messiah. It's grace-based. It results in peace. We know that it is a voluntary substitutionary death. 
We know that it has inside that death penal satisfaction. We know that it rescues or delivers us from this present evil age. We know that it is a culmination of God's story. That gospel that we typically describe or say as the death, burial, resurrection is a culmination of the entire one story. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the seed promise. He is the completion of that blood picture. And we know it is for his glory. It's not about us. So if we have a gospel that is distorting those eight things, it's a different gospel. And it is no gospel at all. What is Paul's point? Well, folks, there's only one gospel. There isn't as if we have competing gospels. There's only one. And a distorted gospel is a different gospel. When you and I talk of these things, and we'll explore this a little more in our next paragraph, chapter 1, 6 through 9, but the gospel and Jesus are the same. The good news is something that he brings, that he is. We cannot have gospel without Jesus. So we are a gospel-celebrating, Jesus-centric church because we believe that the scriptures are gospel-celebrating, Jesus-centric. The gospel is to influence our culture. Our culture should not influence the gospel. When our culture influences the gospel, a distorted gospel comes into existence, which is a different gospel, resulting in no gospel at all. For example... In our desire to reach people, we begin to appeal to their needs and appetites. In time, the meeting of those needs and appetites become the gospel. And if not careful, that good fruit becomes the enemy of the best, which is the root, which is indeed the gospel. Anything that distorts the gospel is a different gospel. And such a gospel is no gospel at all. We must be clear on this. What is the gospel? And the Apostle Paul begins defining for us what is the gospel. What is the most important thing we do as a fellowship in this place? What is the most important thing we have? I'd like to read two quotes as we begin drawing this to a conclusion. There is a tendency in human nature to forget this. Christian writers and teachers have been prone to make much of the ability to perform good works which have in themselves the power of rendering us acceptable to God. It is true indeed that such writings avoided Jewish terms, but many taught doctrine that gave nearly as much weight to works as did that of the Jews themselves. The second quote is by Warren Wearsby, a very popular author that perhaps many of us have read in the past. Pastor Wearsby writes, Galatians is a dangerous book. It exposes the most popular substitute for spiritual living that we have in our churches today. And here he defines it as legalism. We could define it as moralism. We could define it as works righteousness. He goes on, I didn't say among the false cults. I said in the churches. Because that is where much legalism is today. 
Millions of believers think they are spiritual because of what they don't do or because of the leader they follow or because of the group they belong to or because of the things they do. After spending months studying Galatians, I am humbled and challenged. Humbled because I don't think God is too impressed with our ministries. No matter how impressed men may be, challenged because I myself need to start thinking deeper and deeper about these things. We need to see the Spirit and the way that He works in our midst, whether or not our life or ministry fits that current pattern or not. Paul would have us know that his gospel, the free justification of the sinner through Christ crucified, means nothing to those with whom it does not mean everything. We are a gospel-celebrating, Jesus-centric fellowship. Folks, do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? The gospel is indeed easily defined. It's clearly laid out for us inside our text. A resurrected Christ grace-based, resulting in peace with God. It is a voluntary substitutionary sacrifice. It satisfies the wrath of God against us, penal satisfaction. It delivers us and is delivering us from this present evil age. It is based on the Hebrew scripture. It begins in Genesis and culminates in Jesus. And it's all for the glory of God. Do you know the story? And you say, well, Pastor Pat, that's a mouthful. You know what? You can't save yourself, but God can, and Jesus did. If you know the story, then share the story. Let us not overcomplicate the gospel. Let us not think, well, I have to take a course in Evangelism 101. Do you know that you can't? And do you know that God can? And do you know that Jesus did? You're not going to convince the person that is set against the gospel but there are plenty of people whom God has touched and caused them to see their own need. They know that they can't, and they are hungry to hear that God can and Jesus did. And those are the people that we're going to be sharing the gospel with. It is an easy thing to talk gospel with people. Let us be doing that on a regular basis. You say, well, Pastor Pat, I find it so hard. God will give you opportunity. And all you have to say is, you know what? You can't, but God can and Jesus did. You know what? I've got great news for you. I've got great news for you because it ain't about me. It's about him. And he has done everything necessary to restore you back to joy through Jesus in his presence. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to hear again and again. And it's from the text. The text defines for us the gospel. And Father, we have summarized that message by simply saying we can't. I mean, if Jesus is not the voluntary substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies your wrath against us, that meets your sentence of justice then, Father, we have no hope. We can't do that. We can't do that. But you can, and Jesus did. We wallow in the gospel.
Father, there are many people out there who are hungry, that you've touched, that you've caused them to see that they can't. And Father, may we with joy and delight tell them that you can and Jesus did. Thank you, Father, for this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.